Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 151 of Just the Zoo of Us. This week, we're doing things a little different from our usual format, but trust the process because it is a lot of fun. I'm sitting down with the author and science writer behind The Birdist to discuss the national bird of the United States of America. Our guest gives us insight into the process that actually goes into designating official state birds, the history behind the bald eagle's use as the country's symbol, and why the turkey was once famously suggested to be America's next top waddle. This week's twist is that instead of reviewing just one animal like we usually do on this podcast, we each humbly submit our very own top three candidates for the national bird of the United States. Just the Zoo of Us presents Nominating the National Bird with Nick Lund. Everybody, it is Ellen Weatherford. This is your favorite animal review podcast, just the zoo of us. And this week, I'm really excited to bring y'all a friend who you may already be familiar with his work. This is Nick Lund. Say hi, Nick. Hello, everyone. Hello, Ellen. What's going on? I'm so excited to talk to you. People may know you already through your science writing, the books that you've written. They may also know you from Twitter. Uh, Nick, for folks listening at home, let us know a little bit what kind of materials they may already be familiar with from you. Well, if you're on Twitter, I may have uh, thrown a few bird tweets in front of your eyes. (laughs) Uh, I I write uh, under the name The Birdist. On Twitter, I write a lot for the National Audubon Society uh, on their website and a number of other outlets. And I just published two books uh, on the same day. One is a history of the earth for middle grade kids called The Ultimate Biography of Earth, which is really fun through Workman Publishing, a beautiful book uh, with awesome illustrations from Jason Ford. And then also the American Birding Association Field Guide to the Birds of Maine. I live here in Maine. I am here coming to you from my basement in Maine. (laughs) And uh, this is just one of those classic field guides with uh, a whole bunch of great birds to find uh, in the pine tree state. How nice it must be to live in a place where you can have a basement that's not going to instantly flood. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We were talking about you live in Florida and I'm up here in Maine. Yeah, we do have basements. We don't have any gators. Uh, We don't have any fire ants. Yes, basements, no gators. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a trade-off with the winter, the whole winter situation. Uh, That hits us, not you. Yeah, you have very different extremes from we do. We just have 10 months where the air is on fire. So I, <laughs> I don't want to ask you what temperature it is now. I get how many digits is it for? <laughs> it's it's not that bad right now because it just rained a little bit ago. Okay. But later on today I might melt into the ground. So <laughs> good luck with that. No. It is sixty five here <sighs> in Maine in summer. Bless. Right now. But y'all also get some really cool birds up there too. Great birds. Yeah, tons of them. And, uh, you know, if you want to pick up this field guide to Birds of Maine, you can see 265 of them. Everything from Canada jays and boreal chickadees, these cool birds we have up north in the boreal forest, all the way down through, I don't know, Baltimore Orioles and tufted titmice and birds I have in my backyard uh, out here. And, of course, puffins. I mean, puffins is probably the bird that... I was going to ask about puffins. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) You know, it's funny... Puffins are sort of like lobster, you know, like when someone visits Maine, they're like, all right, where's that lobster? But Mainers aren't out eating lobster ever. You know, it's not like (laughs) one of those things. So puffins you know, are wonderful. And Maine is the only state that has breeding colonies of Atlantic puffins. It's an awesome bird to see. You got to put some effort into it. Like, uh, you know, hard work pays off. Uh, You got to get on a boat, go out and see a puffin colony. But it is it's worth it. Mm, Because they're like out on the rocks, right? They're out on the rocks. You know, the puffins and alcids and other pelagic species that we have here spend their whole lives out bobbing around on the ocean. But haven't yet figured out how to lay eggs 
on the ocean. That'll be cool when one does. It's like a floating raft nest. <laughs> but until until then, they got to come in and find uh, some place to lay their eggs. And that's the best place, the most predator-free place for these puffins is, uh, you know, these offshore islands and rocks where they can dig into burrows and lay eggs in there. And so if you want to see them in Maine, you got to come out in the summer. You got to get on a boat and go out to see one of those islands and check them out. It's a bit of a to-do, but it's so cool because – you know, if you've ever done it, you're sort of going out over this beautiful ocean and all of a sudden in the distance you see this little rock and you see these little things, these little mosquito-looking things in the distance flying around the rock and you get closer and all of a sudden there's turns wheeling and screeching and razor bills and, and puffins coming and going. Uh, it's a real spectacle and so do it. When you mentioned that... Like- waiting on the day when a puffin just lays their egg directly into the water that made me think of those birds that like don't build nests at all and just place their egg directly (laughs) on the branch yeah (laughs) they're like that's good yeah do it you know i've seen some really pathetic like uh pigeon or morning dove nests it's just like one stick and they're like "Ah, i'm good i'm good here that should do the trick (laughs) that would i mean i don't know how that could possibly work but evolutionarily if there's some seabird that can figure out how to like lay an egg on some floating vegetation or something that would solve a lot of their problems just directly into the water like there you go you know (laughs) it could it could work question mark i don't really know Uh, there's probably too much big stuff swimming in the water that would just gobble it right up i would imagine eggs are fairly delicious (laughs) i do know that um so maybe not safe not safe but if you can figure it out but that would also hurt maine's tourism industry and i don't want i don't want that to happen come on up and see these puffins now, would it hurt or would it help? Because then people would be trying to come to the beaches to see if they can get these puffin eggs that are washing ashore. Oh, good point. So you'd have like boogie boarding egg collectors out there, like snacking up eggs. <laughs> There's a lot of potential, I think, for this idea. There you go. See, we could workshop this a little bit. <laughs> well, for now, you got to come up, you got to get on a boat, you got to check it out. And uh, it's fun that's you know maine is divided if you're thinking about bird watching in maine it's divided into a couple sections there's sort of like coastal maine and then inland maine you know northern maine all the way up is this beautiful forest huge swaths of forest some of that is sort of eastern forest and some of that is the you know the dense conifer dominated boreal forest where you find a lot of spruce grouse and boreal chickadee and canada jay and birds that you really can't find anywhere south and so both of those places are uh, you know the coast and northern maine are areas that birders really need to go to if they want to see them all which is what we want to do so i'm lucky i'm lucky to live up here i'm jealous of florida birds constantly but i'm happy with what i got up here you have like a Pokedex of Maine birds that you... You know what? That's what birding is. You know, I mean, whether we want to believe, whether we want to admit it or not, you're, people are catching them all. and Got to uh, watch them all. Exactly. Got to <laughs> put them all in your bins. It's the same instinct. And actually, I, you know, I, I have written about how the similarities between Pokemon and birding. And I hope that some kids out there who grew up loving Pokemon... And, and there must be birders who i didn't grow up with pokemon but there must be birders who sort of made a, a switch over because it's the same instinct and it gets you outside and it you know it's it's like real life so um i think it's a good comparison the creator of pokemon uh, satoshi tajiri has said that he got the idea for pokemon from his childhood spent bug collecting oh so very cool it was inspired by that like you said the same instinct to go right. out and like collect the creatures <laughs> it, yeah it's a it's an instinct that a lot of people have and i think you know i'm really glad that it, my instinct to do that channeled me to birding birding i'm you know i'm so happy all the time that i've found birding because it gets me out and it is just a way to appreciate the natural world but it's also sort of a healthy way to get out my instinct to see stuff and collect stuff and keep lists of stuff yeah, because there is a lot of like, well, there can be, you know, like I, I have kind of the more style of I just see it, I look at it, go, wow, that's neat. And then that is the last time I will ever think about that. But I know for a lot of <laughs> yeah. people, you know, it can be really fun to like take a journal with you and sure. like write down your observations and keep track of like what you've seen. And it could be a, a really interesting like documentarian almost experience absolutely there's no wrong way to do it and some people sit with a bird and sketch it out and follow its patterns a lot of people also are like there it is next (laughs) and that's fine too you know whatever gets people out and whatever gives people some appreciation for the diversity and and uh, you know how special our nature is around us works for me absolutely and it's also so beginner friendly right because totally. you literally just walk outside and there you go you're bird watching yeah 
Birds are anywhere, anytime you look outside, any window you look out, you can see a bird, mm-hmm. probably. But if you're, I don't know, into orchids or something, it's a lot <laughs> harder to find orchids. You know, you got to look a lot harder. So birding is sort of like the, it, it opens the door to all the other stuff. It's the guy in the dark alleyway like, hey, kid, you want to see some animals? <laughs> <laughs> but, in a, but in a nice way. <laughs> in a non-threatening way. <laughs> well, so you mentioned that like Maine has all these different areas. It has a bunch of different, like a wide variety of types of birds you could see there. What is Maine's state bird? Mm. Well, you're opening a can of worms, whether you know it or not. I'm not sure you know this. Um, Maine's state bird, if you read the law is the chickadee. Okay. If you look on all the official material and things, it's the black-capped chickadee. We, we represent it as the black-capped chickadee. But the black-capped chickadee is one of two chickadees that live in Maine. Uh, the aforementioned boreal chickadee also lives here. And I don't know if you have time for a quick story time. Sure. But, yeah. um, I am I'm from here in Maine. I was living away for a while. Then I moved back in 2018 to work for Maine Audubon. And uh, almost immediately after I started, I sort of got into some trouble because I looked at the law in Maine and said, just said the chickadee. And so I said, well, we have two chickadees and it's not specified in the law which one we have. So what, which one is it? And of course, that got into the newspaper and it became this whole to do where Maine Audubon says that Maine doesn't have a state bird. Um, and there actually was a bill introduced into the state legislature to try to clarify the situation. And so I had to go up to Augusta, our capital, and go in front of a, the a <laughs> legislative committee and answer a whole bunch of questions about whether it should be the boreal or black-capped chickadee or oh, what the deal word. was. <laughs> um, yeah. And the bill failed. There is no clarification. Um, legislators are busy folks, and they feel um, that this isn't perhaps the most urgent issue, which I straight up disagree with. I'm not saying it's the most urgent issue, but we can clarify. Um like, how long is it really going to take you? Uh, two seconds. They're like, oh, gotta, you know, it's going to cost money to replace stuff. It's like, you don't have to do anything. Just edit the Google uh, Doc. Or just say Black Eyed Chickadee, and then you're all good. You right. Go. Throw it in the law. Um, most laws are done on Google Docs, right? So just edit you know, so it. So it, it should be done right there. Uh, so it didn't pass. Nothing happened. The state bird is still the up-in-the-air chickadee. But it was an important lesson for me of how these things work and what kind of legislative opposition there is to state birds and all that stuff. Um, I, I do a lot of thinking about state birds, and and they're pretty crummy across the <laughs> state. If you look at a list of state birds, they are thoughtless and repetitive and pretty boring, yeah. frankly. And so um, it just needs some work in Maine and in Florida and around the country. Yeah, we were chatting about that a little bit. I was expressing my frustration at the fact that Florida's state bird is the northern mockingbird not because it's not a cool bird but like we can do better (laughs) you have so much so many more birds to choose from so you have rich avian diversity colorful stuff cool looking stuff endemic stuff and you went with the same one that tennessee and mississippi and texas and all these other states already have i know it's it's a shame i'm not going to come on you here and badmouth the northern mockingbird but i could they are fairly boring i think (laughs) and especially compared to some other things so it needs work around the country. And I think this is maybe the seed of of when all this revolution happens. Yeah, absolutely. Because the reason that I asked you what uh, Maine State Bird is, is that today, in a little bit of a deviation from our typical format on this podcast, we are talking about the national bird, which for the United States is the bald eagle, which I think has kind of expanded beyond just the national bird, and it's just kind of become like the national animal. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if we have a national animal that's like not a bird, but well, it's just kind of like the icon, I guess. Yeah, you're right. And and actually, to get technical, the United States does not have a national bird. Um, the bald eagle appears on our national symbol, but it is not a national bird. We do have some national things. We have a national mammal, which is the bison, American bison. Okay, that's a good choice. It's a solid choice. That was just 2016 by President Obama. We have national a national tree, which are oak trees. But we don't actually have a national bird. But uh, the bald eagle is sort of... It is our official national symbol. It appears on our national symbol and is sort of a shorthand representation for the United States, right? If you look at a like a political cartoon and you see bald eagle, that represents the U.S. And so it has become uh, ingrained as our national symbol, even though technically it's not our national bird. What I'm hearing is that 
there's an opportunity. (laughs) You are right. (laughs) I'm hearing that this hasn't yet been cemented in legislature (laughs) and that uh, we have an opportunity here. Yes. So uh, we have both come up with a few candidates Mm -hmm. that we think would make excellent national birds for the United States. Um, But before we get into our candidates for the national bird, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how did the bald eagle come to be this like symbol of the United States? Like why the bald eagle? There's so many fascinating birds that live here. Like why that one? Yeah, well, it's it's an old history and it started basically right after the United States became a country. You know, one of the things that new countries have to do is sort of get their mm, stuff in order. We got to get a flag. We got to get some stationery. We need some brand development. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and one of those things is a national symbol uh, and a national seal. Uh, you know, we have to put this on official documents, et cetera, et cetera. And so Ben Franklin, you know, took a crack at it. Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, some heavy hitters were in there. And it eventually, the task eventually fell to a guy named Charles Thompson in 1782. He was a secretary of the Congress at the time. And he said, all right, I want to figure out this national seal thing. Let's look around. There were some submissions out there. Some people had drawn some submissions uh, for, you know, potential national seals. And one guy, a 28-year-old fella named William Barton, uh, had drawn this design that had a, a white eagle in it. And so Charles Thompson took a look at that drawing and said, interesting, let me let me yank that eagle out. This was like an all white eagle. You know, eagles throughout history uh, are used as like symbols of power and strength. If you think of uh, the flags of Germany and Mexico and um, all these other flags, you know, an eagle is a strong and powerful thing. And so uh, Charles Thompson said, let's take this white eagle that William Barton drew and we'll change it into the American bald eagle, this eagle that we have all around. And there you go. Uh, and so that that's eventually how the symbol came. He sort of drew this uh, this first draft, which looks like something that I drew in sixth grade, like on the back of my <laughs> math notebook, um, of that eagle, you know, with the eagle with his wings out, grabbing arrows in one hand and, and some vegetation, olive branch, I don't know what it is actually, in the other <laughs> talons. And that was it. And that, our national symbol was born. And that's it, really. You know, it, it's people are fairly happy with it overall, although famously, uh, Ben Franklin later on had some complaints about it. And I think it's interesting to set up our conversation of, you know, what should the national bird be? Because, you know, bald eagle is not, not you know, has some flaws, you could say. What did Ben Franklin say its flaws were? Yeah, old Benny. <laughs> as far as we could tell, he didn't raise a fuss at the time. So he he wasn't in there, you know, when this was proposed to say no, this is a bad symbol. Later on in a in a letter to his daughter, he wrote that he really kind of ripped on the bald eagle. Oof. And as a birder, when you read this, you're like, "Yeah, gotcha, buddy. You're you're right on." <laughs> Drag him. He said he drags this eagle. He said it's straight up quote from Ben Franklin. And look, Ben Franklin, a revered figure, you know, criticism from him is rough. So he said bald eagle is quote a bird of bad moral character. He doesn't get his living honestly. He talks about how, uh, and birders know this, well, eagles will steal fish from ospreys and other things. They'll chase around ospreys. So he, Franklin talks about how this diligent osprey goes all through the work of catching a fish on himself. And the eagle swoops in and takes it. He says that the eagle is a coward. He talks about how, and we've seen this, you know, an eagle will be flying around and some smaller bird will be chasing it off. Mm-hmm. He said, that's not you know, a proper emblem from us. And we get chased off by these little birds. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. Yikes. He's not kidding. And Franklin, that would be tough. Totally roasted. Harsh. Yeah. He, Franklin suggested in this letter, so it's not really clear whether he was just sort of riffing mm-hmm. or he actually wanted this to happen, but that the turkey, he said the turkey uh, should be our national bird. And I actually like his reasoning. He said that it's a, it's a bird of courage, which I think is true, but he also said it's a little sort of silly and vain, sort of like you know, not doesn't take itself too seriously, which sure. I think is a, a positive and sort of a good <laughs> thing for Americans. So Franklin suggested the turkey. It's not clear whether he actually suggested or just sort of making it out to his daughter. But the bald eagle, yeah, he, he was right. He was right. People that don't spend a lot of time watching birds might not realize that bald eagles are like largely scavengers. Like totally. <laughs> they're just like giant seagulls, really. <laughs> yeah. 
I remember when I started birding, I was amazed. I was like, uh, you know, where should I go to see eagles? And everyone's like, go to the dump. Yeah. Go to the landfill. There's tons of them there. Like, go up oh, behind the McDonald's. Eating trash and attacking seagulls. Like, oh, that's not that cool. I mean, you know, at the same time, bald eagles are powerful and majestic. And when you see one, they are awe-inspiring. You know, especially now that bald eagles are so have bounced back, thankfully. Often I'll be walking in some urban or, you know, suburban place and a bald eagle fly over and I'll point it out to, to some passerby and they will, oh, yes. oh my, they will be like <laughs> staggered, a bald eagle. Um, so it still has that power over people because they're such impressive birds. But yeah, they're scavengers. They're uh, kind of lazy. They sound kind of dumb, if you ask me. <laughs> um, they are not necessarily a slam dunk. Yeah, it feels like the choice based on what you told me about how they just like swapped it in for another generic eagle on the design. Mm. It sounds like it was a purely aesthetic decision. I, I think so. <laughs> At least they got it right. Like if you look at sports teams, for example, like the Atlanta Hawks is a basketball team. That's just a generic hawk. And so I'm glad that at least Charles Thompson said, let's actually do a real eagle. You know, he could have just done some white eagle or other colored eagle. So at least he got it right. So I'll give him some credit there. I'm trying. Are there white eagles? I don't know of any. (laughs) No, there are not. No, you know, all these people who are in charge of making logos and designs, they just are like bird. Yeah, bird. Yeah, they don't care about what's real and what's not. Call one scientist. Yeah, just how hard is it? There's a ton of us. We're right, I'm on Twitter. Pick up a book. Jeez. Pick up the ABA Field Guide to the Birds of Maine. Flip through the Eagles. You'll see. Not there. Run on down to your local bookstore and pick up a copy. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, I you could go crazy complaining about it because um, it happens all the time. But mm-hmm. uh, but at least, it, at least he chose a real eagle that lives in the United States. So, I'll give him credit there. Yes. I mean, there's things to be said in favor of the bald eagle. Bald eagle is a perfectly fine bird. Um, But I feel like as far as, you know, a national emblem, something that we're going to be like putting our name to officially, I feel like you could put a little more thought into it rather than just like, it's a cool bird, right? Let's have a conversation. Yeah. You know, that (laughs) never happened. You know, no one ever said like, well, what should it be? That's what we're doing. (laughs) There we go. Until today. Hope you hear this, Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin, if you're listening. um, (laughs) Rises from the grave. Yeah, he's an uh, avid listener. He listens to every episode. So you and I have come up with our own candidates for the National Bird. We have three each. Um, So we're going to kind of sound off with our candidates. I have some reasons that I've selected mine that I'm going to go over to. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I think you should go first. Okay. My first pick for the United States national bird is the great horned owl, Mm. which is more so to kind of fit with, I think what they were originally going for wanting this like bird of prey. It's a large, intimidating, powerful bird. But I do think that the great horned owl fits that role a little bit better than the bald eagle does. Yes. Because whereas the bald eagle is, you know, more of a scavenger that prefers to kind of let other birds do the hunting for it. The great horned owl is like an active hunter and they're incredibly good at it. Yes. That I have come across in our like notes for doing this show so, so, so many times. I've come across animals where it's like their only predator is the great horned owl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just a worldwide menace. Yes, they're just like so uniquely good at hunting everything. So I think if you're going for like an intimidating bird of prey, I think it's got to be the great horned owl because like just looking at how well they are suited to hunting, they are nocturnal. So they have these big giant eyes that are like sort of cone shaped almost um, that let them bring in a lot of light so they can see great in the dark, but also like they can't move their eyes in their sockets. They're like fixed forward. So when you see owls doing that weird uh, 360 no scope head turn, um, it's because <laughs> they can't otherwise move there. So that's more of a, of a necessity thing, but it's still cool that they can do that, right? That they haven't been limited by the ability yeah. to move their eyes. Being nocturnal predators, they are incredibly silent flyers. So they have their feathers have these serrated edges to like break up the flow of air over their feathers so they don't get that whistling sound that you might get from other birds. One could fly inches from your face mm-hmm. and you wouldn't know unless and you probably do. Yes. Yeah. Like unless you like <laughs> felt the wind blowing by you. Yeah. You wouldn't know that there was an owl flying around, which is like how they're able to take out so many animals that like nocturnal animals that can't hear them coming powerful they're huge (laughs) they have those big powerful legs that are also covered in fluffy feathers so that if they're picking up something that is maybe prickly or 
feisty <laughs> something that like a like a squirrel yeah. or something that's going to turn around and try to bite yeah animals don't love no. getting caught yeah trying to get out of yeah there. so the owl has these fluffy legs that protect it from getting injured when it's hunting yep. i just think they're like really nailing it as far as like hunting goes there's very little that is not countered undoubtedly well can i push back a little bit yeah talk? absolutely there's a very important discussion to have first i think which is what should a national bird be? Mm. What are we trying? What's the goal here? What makes a good one? What doesn't make a good one? Yeah. And in all my study, informal study of state birds and national birds, no one has ever put any thought into that question. Nobody has no an answer to that. The all of the fifty states when they went to choose their state birds, none of them said what should it be. <laughs> For example, do we want something that? lives here year round or something that just is only here is a migratory bird is only here part of the year do we want an endemic bird uh that only lives in our state if possible do we want a bird that it can be seen by everybody is it is like a backyard bird so everyone in our state can see it or is it okay if it just lives in one part of the state or somewhere should it be big and powerful should it be pretty and colorful like what is the criteria and nobody has any answer to that everyone's sort of opinion on state birds is based on some criteria that is not necessarily agreed to widely and so for a national bird should it be a powerful thing should it be a thing that lives only because so one thing i will say for great horned owl because it's a worldwide bird so is that representative of American bird? What's some, what's particularly American about it? Do we, does it need to be particularly American? I don't know. I mean, bald eagle lives in Canada and Mexico. So that would be, I got nothing bad to say about great horned owls. Love them. But it's not particularly American. What do you think? What do you think makes a good? I was thinking about like birds of prey because I wanted to offer kind of like a bird of prey alternative. The other ones yeah. that I picked aren't necessarily like birds of prey. So I went different directions with those. But this one, I was trying to think of an alternative that is very heavily featured in like lore mm. and stories and culture. Like you see a lot of like owl feathers being heavily incorporated Absolutely. into like indigenous art and they appear in stories and in like identities of indigenous groups in America. So I feel like they are very like entrenched in the sort of identity of America. But that was kind of my thought. I was trying to think of like a bird of prey Love it. that lives here and is iconic. Love it. And I should say, too, the sort of importance to indigenous culture is a point in favor of the bald eagle, too. Mm -hmm. Bald eagles similarly sort of um, you know play that role, which is I agree that's that's important and a good one. But what's interesting is I think it's funny about owls is that I feel like for a lot of Western cultures, owls are usually tend to be associated with like wisdom and intelligence. I think this comes from their affiliation with Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom. Um, so they just kind of developed this association with intelligence, I guess, um, which I think is kind of funny because owls... Because of how big their eyes are, they don't have a lot of skull space left for brain. <laughs> so they end up with these kind of small brains and they're not actually that oh, no. smart. Owl slander. <laughs> like I've heard this from people who like work with birds of prey too, that owls don't have a ton going on back there. <laughs> You're <laughs> glad that they're too dumb to be able to listen to this podcast because they would be <laughs> they would be furious. <laughs> if those kids could read, they'd be very upset. <laughs> Another thing that I wanted to like kind of dunk on the bald eagle for in favor of the great horned owl is that, like you said, like the bald eagles don't have a great sound. They make this kind of squeaking, chirping sound. It is like a trill yeah. sort of like, it sounds like a seagull. Yes. It's pretty in its own way, but it's not the piercing screech that people think that they do because right. they're usually dubbed over in favor of a red-tailed hawk sound. Absolutely. So usually the bald eagle is like zhuzhed up yeah. in like TV and movies to make it sound cooler. They have to dub over it in public. It's like it's writing his speeches for it. It's embarrassing. It's like on a teleprompter. It's embarrassing. It is. But they don't have to do that with a great horned owl. The great horned owl has a beautiful, lovely, perfect, iconic. Like, it's like what you think of mm. when you think of what sound an owl makes. It is like stock footage owl sound. It's perfect owl sound. It's the opposite of the bald eagles thing. Like, <laughs> which is they it. take the great horned owl sound and put it over other owls. 
It's like the silent movie, you know, when all these silent movie actors uh, were doing well until sound came along, then their voices were all so weird. The one thing about the owl, too, I will say, what, how do you feel about the spookiness factor? Because they're also sort of a Halloween associated in the public mind. Is it, would it be weird to have a spooky national bird? I think it'd be cool. I don't think so. My next pick for the national bird is even spookier. Oh, but I, I think the great horned owl is one of the least spooky owls. They're, right. It's it's <laughs> sort of a um, a pop culture reputation. It's got the cat ears. Like yep. I don't think there's anything intimidating about that. Barn owls, however, terrifying. Terrifying. Otherworldly. <laughs> I would nightmare inducing. If you hear one at night, nothing about them is not unsettling. Do you have them down where you are? Uh, we don't have them in Maine, and, and that's okay because they sound like a, the scream of someone getting attacked or something, right? Yes. It's like a really unsettling. Now, that being said, juvenile great horned owls <laughs> do make a horrible sound that we had a juvenile great horned owl behind our house for a while, which we only know because in the middle of the night we heard it screaming for like weeks. Yeah, um, because it was in that weird transition between being a chick and being an adult right. where like the parents had stopped coming back to feed it. So it was screaming all night long. And we didn't know that that was what it was. And we were just like hanging out in our living room one night and we hear this, what sounded like a child screaming in the aye, woods. Aye, aye. And we were like legitimately concerned. We were like, is somebody out there? You know, you and I both have kids. We know that all kids sound pretty terrible in a lot of stages. So (laughs) it's not, I can't fault anybody for that. No, not at all. Well, let me go to mine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's hear it. What is your first pick? My first one, I also did a raptor replacement. I chose the dub recipient, the bird that they use the vocals for to cover up for the embarrassing, silly <laughs> sound of the bald eagle, the red-tailed hawk. I think red-tailed hawk occupies a lot, of, it ticks a lot of the same boxes as a bald eagle, but doesn't tick the rank coward box. Um, doesn't tick the steals food from everyone else box, as far as I know. They hunt all their on their own. Lives all over the country, so he's found in every state, I think. Maybe not Hawaii, sorry. Big, powerful, um, fairly easy to identify, especially in the eastern half of the U.S. with that bright red tail. When we get to the western subspecies of red tails, it gets a little messier, but uh, <laughs> people should learn their hawks. <laughs> is a bird, is big and powerful and strong, but also is common, right? You see them a lot of telephone poles. You see them around. So I go back and forth about how common a national or state bird should be. But, but this one is sort of common enough where you can see it if you want to, but not, uh, you know, you're not swatting them out of the way when trying to get to your car or something. Um <laughs> And, you know, they're big and powerful. They're part of the Budio soaring hawks. They um, swoop down on uh, on rodents and and small mammals. And so they are tough and strong and I think would be a a, a good replacement. Plus, you wouldn't have to dub them over. You could that famous (laughs) scream that they do. People know that scream already, whether you know the red-tailed hawk. If you ever watch like a Western movie, um, you know that scream. And so I think that they could sort of fit in pretty quickly and easily and take over from the bald eagle without causing too much fuss they're already in our pop culture we just didn't know it (laughs) we just didn't know it people would go oh that guy plus it would be easy to stylize them like if you're going to use them in like cartoons and stuff you could do like a like how the bald eagle you basically need like three colors you need like black white and yellow yes and with a red-tailed hawk you basically just need brown and red yeah you could do the whole red-tailed hawk with just two colors we could save this country on printing costs from astronomically from down from three <laughs> colors to two colors everybody wins the gao would love it and like it would be easy to draw right like yep. it's easy to include on logos and stuff sure. so yeah and you could i mean look you know don't quote me on this if you had like a silhouette of a bald eagle you could just use the same it's not too different even structurally that's true so swap them out really, <laughs> just swap them right out throw some red on the tail call it a day uh, everybody wins. So I, you know, I, I, there. I think that if you're going to go with a raptor and want to, and sort of want to make it an easy transition, I would go red tail. It's a great one. When this goes up, this will be right after a guest episode I did with Maya Higa, and something that uh, she talked about was that they don't have that problem of being kind of cowardly. It goes in the opposite direction where they're regularly hurting themselves because they're taking on <laughs> challenges much bigger than what they can yeah. handle. <laughs> so maybe a little big for their britches. You know, one of Franklin's complaints was that these birds would escort bald eagles from their territory. I watched a red-tailed hawk today getting just dive-bombed by red-winged blackbirds and 
uh, brown-headed cowbirds, and this Retta Hawk didn't even flinch, didn't oh, even care, could care so less that these things were getting on its case, just sat there uh, enjoying the sun. And so not cowardly. That's so funny because one of the things I talked about with Maya last <laughs> last week was that I have noticed so many times, and apparently this is a thing all over the country, the hawks in our area, who I believe are red shoulders and not red tailed, they consistently get completely bodied by our mockingbirds. Mm-hmm. Like the mockingbirds that are nesting or something, they mm-hmm. absolutely, they will like bully our mo- yes. or hawks right out of wherever they are. It happens every day. It happens all the time. There are lots of birds like that. King birds are famous for that. Tons of birds are like, I don't care. Even though <laughs> red tails are not. Don't I'd quote me on this. I mean, they're not a nest predator. I mean, they're not really a threat to these birds. They're just sort of around. And yet these birds just go, fear, get out of here. And are just bombing their heads and chasing right on their backs and stuff. Needlessly. <laughs> yeah, just for the heck of it. I, I much respect to those. Hey there, we are going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of the other shows on the Maximum Fun Network. When we get back, we're going to talk about our last couple of national bird candidates. So stick around. Um, hi, I'm looking for a movie. Oh, I gotcha. Uh, there's that new foreign film with the time travel. There's an amazing documentary about queer history on streaming. Have I told you about this classic where giant robots fight? Or there's that one that most critics hated, but I thought was actually pretty good. Ooh, I know. The one with the huge car chase, and then there's that scene where... The, the car, car jumps, jumps over, over the submarine. submarine! Wow, who are you eclectic movie experts? Well, I'm Ify Wadiway. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Alonzo Duraldi. And together, we host the movie podcast, Maximum film new episodes every week on maximumfun.org and you actually just walked into our recording booth oh weird sorry i thought this was a video store you seem like a lady with a lot of problems carrie is it oh yes hi i'm carrie i am psychic ross and i will be reading you this evening oh interesting well okay i co-host a podcast it's called ono ross and carrie yes i'm sensing that the spirits are telling me it is a show about well it's about like fringe science and spirituality and claims of the paranormal oh you knew that you do research online but more importantly like we do in-person investigations investigate as well oh my god that's amazing see me and my friend this is so weird my friend ross same name as you. Weird. He and I just go and try them all out. And actually, we've gone to a number of psychics. And to be honest with you, it's a lot like this. It's called Ono Ross and Carrie. They can find it at MaximumFun.org. I could have told you that. Well, one bird that does regularly harass hawks is my next pick for the national bird. Hit me. Which is the American crow. Yeah, classic. So there are obviously crows and ravens all over the world, but the American crow is specific to the North American continent. We do have ravens too, but they're like, I, I think y'all probably have ravens up where you are. Yeah, they're not nearly as common as crows. No, we ha- we don't have ravens down here. We just have crows. But so the American crow is specific to our continent. Of course, there's like other corvids that live here and stuff, and they're also very similar crows that live all over the world. But ours is special. <laughs> there are many like <laughs> It, but this one is ours and like you were mentioning like what do we want to f- see in a national bird and whereas with my first pick i went with like a kind of a bald eagle replacement this one is more like what i would personally pick mm. based on values i was trying to think of a bird that has some of the same idealistically sort of like <laughs> values you would sort of optimistically identify with and i think that the crow just has so many endearing things about it that I think are just, as a human, <laughs> feel so relatable to me. Yeah. First of all, they're generalists and they're opportunistic, so they can really thrive literally anywhere. Um, like the fact that they're found in so many different parts of the country is just a testament to the fact that they can live anywhere. They live here in our marshes. They live in the desert. They live up in the forest. They live in the mountains. They live anywhere. They don't care. They live in the city, right? Like they can live literally anywhere, which I thought was a great testament to their adaptability and resilience, which I think adaptability and resilience are both like good traits to have. 
have. So this is maybe like a value that like an American person could aspire to. I, I can't argue with that. I think you're. I think it's a great choice. Crows get a bad rap, sort of instinctually, I think, from a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But anyone who spends two seconds looking at one knows like this bird's got something going on. This bird has oh so much has it has it whatever it is it's got <laughs> it. They're charismatic and they're smart. And they are curious and they are, they're beautiful, Mm -hmm. you know, whether you give them the credit or not. I mean, they are, they're, they're special birds, no doubt. I think that sometimes people, you know, you just look at it and it looks just like a bird that's just black all over. But if you see them in the right light, they're like iridescent. And iridescent is like the most beautiful thing in the world to me. And (laughs) so I think there is something to be said for the fact that they have like a little hint of rainbow. Yep. Just a little bit. A little touch of rainbow. (laughs) You know, I think, again, I think the spookiness is going to be a tough sell. A lot of people think that they are bad for some reason. Yes. So I did actually kind of dive into that a little bit because once again, Western culture, I guess, really heavily associates crows and ravens with death. Right. Mostly because they are scavengers. So being scavengers, they pick meat off of carcasses. So they you see, you see them hanging out with dead stuff basically a lot. <laughs> um, but also they do something really, really interesting where when a crow dies, the other crows will come and gather around and like examine it. They're not yeah. touching it. They're not feeding off of it, but they're definitely like, they're like solving the murder, right? Like they're like, right. oh, the murder, get it? Murder of crows. Right. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of all like investigating and they look around and try to figure out what happened, which, you know, is believed to be a form of like learning. Like they're trying to figure out what happened to kill this crow and how they can avoid it. The right. Huh. Um, but so since they do like they hang out around dead crows, they hang out around dead animals that they're picking off of. They just developed this association with death. But going back to like indigenous American culture, they really don't have the same perspective on crows that a lot of like Western culture does. They really are portrayed much more flattering angle. They really focus on their intelligence and like you said, their charisma, right? Yeah. Like their crows often like cooperate with other predators. So they're like there's a flock of crows that team up with the coyotes behind our house. Awesome. Where they go together, you'll hear them both at the same time. Like the coyotes will all start yapping and then the crows start circling <laughs> overhead. So they're like teaming yeah. up where the the coyotes will like make a kill and then the crows yep. come and pick it up after afterwards. I, I love it. It's I love so it. So cool. I think we can do a couple things to get it going. I think we should try to change the term murder. Mm. I think don't, I don't think that's doing him any favors. It's not working. <laughs> no, it's just that people people have that in their head as sort of like a piece of bar trivia, and uh, I, now I think that that carries the association over. I think if we did. I don't know, a circus of crows or a, a, circus. Or a joy. What's something, a happy word that a we can A celebration of crows. Of a crows. celebration, yeah. A party of crows. Yes. And that would help a lot. I do think administratively, now we're down to one color, really. I know they have some iridescence when you look, but we're really saving the government some money by just swapping right over to a one color bird. Easy to draw, easy to color in. That's a flat vector right there. <laughs> done. No color printing required. <laughs> I appreciate us getting into the details of the, how oh, this yeah. will actually roll out. Because that stuff is the, – the senators and the representatives will ask you these questions as we're going through. The bottom line. The bottom line. How much money am I saving on brown ink? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. You got my vote. I love Beautiful. it. Beautiful. <laughs> What's love your it. second pick? Well, I went sort of the same route, similar route. I did also a Corvid. Smart – Adaptable birds, familiar birds, doesn't live in every state, but lives in many states. And look, crow, beautiful, a subtle beauty, perhaps you could say. This bird, a straight up stunner. Yeah, A bird I think that, I think is one of the most underratedly beautiful birds, which I think if you're trying to, if we're trying to get this through Congress, you got to have one that people, that's pretty. Pizzazz. I went with a blue jay. Because blue jays, in they are corvids. They're smart. They do a lot of the same things that crows do, although they're not, you know, ripping apart meat. But they are beautiful, straight up beautiful. I always think, you know, I always tell people a blue jay. I think is most underratedly pretty bird because they're so common and they're sort of around all the time that we don't take the time to look at them. They have so much going on. They would be postcard bird. A postcard bird, yeah. <laughs> and I think you need some of that, like, immediately apparent that this is 
a stunner bird. I think that helps you open the conversation with some senator who's like, I don't know if I want to change a bird. Be like, well, look at this. And he's, his eyes will light up. <laughs> He'd be so blinded by the pretty. Because blue jays also have sort of a blue iridescence. I mean, they the, the blue on them is so dynamic and looks different in different lights. Sometimes it's dark. Sometimes it's like aqua. Mm. Um, and they're, they're really delicately patterned with all the, the colors. And so you know, they seem like something straight out of a, a jungle when you look at it. It's like, this is, what is this even doing in my backyard? I'm blessed <laughs> to have you flying over my dumb yard. And so I think it's the same, you know, it, they're also smart. They don't have any of the spooky baggage. Um, they're not, a, you know, not in any superstitions as far as I know. So I would go, I would suggest the Blue Jay. If you're in Arizona or some of the states that don't have blue jays, then we're gonna have to. I'm gonna have to throw you some pork barrel spending, or I'll have to. We'll get a you know new highway or something. We'll do some political favor trading to get this in there. <laughs> but uh, that's my suggestion. I feel like a lot of people have positive memories associated with blue jays too. I feel like most people probably have some sort of experience of seeing blue jays or watching blue jays. Like it has that sort of like I'm home sort of feeling. Like Definitely. when you see a blue jay, it feels like you associate it with like growing up and nostalgia yeah. a near unanimous q rating right <laughs> popularity like who when have you ever heard of someone say a bad thing about a blue jay ever never have you I'm, i have heard oh. people express frustration with how mean blue jays can be mm. they're quite aggressive the feeder? yes <laughs> yes good point they can which okay i will say is incredibly on brand for the united I states was, <laughs> i was just gonna say <laughs> I was just going to say, perfect. Yes. Yeah. So maybe yeah. attitude-wise, they kind of fit the bill a little bit. <laughs> right. But I have heard a lot of people express frustration that Blue Jays will often dominate the like That's bird true. feeder or like anywhere where you're trying to see other birds. You That's end up true. with just Blue Jays because the Blue Jays will force everyone else out. I wonder if we could spin that into a positive. If we're trying to sell some of these, you know, tough military guys on getting rid of the bald eagle and changing it to be like, hey, when when there are a bunch of birds at the feeder and a blue jay rolls up, they everyone scatters. This yes. is blue jay time. So they are <laughs> they are not, you know, eagles, but they're tough and and they own the feeder. I'm, that's how I'm gonna, I'm trying to think of positive PR for this effort. I think all it would take would be one viral tiktok of blue jays chasing away a bald eagle one all right let's do it which i mean that footage probably already exists and is floating around out there it, so. it has to they're out there causing trouble all day long and shooing things away yeah so it's got to be out there <laughs> you mentioned that they like are corvids which for people listening who don't know what a corvid is that is like the group of birds that crows and ravens belong to so they're re- right. relatives of the crows and the ravens and the magpies also i yep. think yeah and and like those birds they're they're very smart they cache food they're actually really important as sort of seed dispersers they they will take acorns and other things and bury them all over the place to you know get food for later and a lot of times if they forget or don't come back those seeds will sprout so they're really important on that side but you know they are um generalists for the most part they're out there um looking for different sources of food and just like a corvid they're they're inquisitive they're smart they have a lot of different vocalizations you know we know them as sort of that the the they say j um but they also are famous for imitating hawks for example red tail hawks they imitate red tail hawks really well and they're sort of underrated as as vocalists crows are too actually crows you know are famous for just the sort of caw caw but american crows have all kinds of cool weird bell sounding vocalizations and weird like clucks and barks and things oh that reminds me of something that like i, I came across this in my notes and I, and I remember it sticking with me as something that also reminded me a lot of the united states as a country is that crows in different parts of the country sound different and that their vocalizations are just ever so slightly different from each other where you get this regional dialects of crows where crows in different pockets of the country caw differently (laughs) and it reminded me i was like we really do that here you know people all over the country have specific little dialects and accents all over the place so like right you're seeing that play out in the crows too absolutely that you know not necessarily unique to crows though i think a lot of birds that are found across the country have you know regional variation or subspecies or different vocalizations so I, I, you know, I know, for example, Cardinal jumps to mind. The Cardinals mm. in the Southwest are much bigger build and, and different song sparrows too. Yeah, that it would be fun to have a national bird where you could explore that. Yeah, we have Cardinals around here. I was, I just recently was like asking people if they knew of a bird 
in the Northeast Florida area that it sounds like it's saying cheetah girls because it's out in my backyard and they make a little tweeting sound that's like cheetah girls, cheetah girls, cheetah girls. Oh, yeah. And then I had no idea what it was. I found out it was a cardinal. <laughs> Uh, you know i gotta say i've heard that noise a lot i've never put cheetah girls to it but um but you're right to me that sounds like sort of a laser beam noise like yeah yeah that's definitely it girls wait is cheetah girls a thing or you just think it sounds like cheetah is that like a show i don't know about it is the cheetah girls okay it was a movie very popular with people who were between the ages of five and ten in like the early 2000s (laughs) gotcha okay good to know cheetah girls so my my third pick for our national bird, this time I went with a bird that I think tells a story mm-hmm. that resonates really well. It's not found all over the country, but I think that its story is important to the whole country, and that is the California condor. Mm-hmm. This is the largest flighted bird in North America with a wingspan of up to 10 feet wide. So it's just a massive, massive bird. I've never seen them, actually, which I think probably most people have never seen one. (laughs) Yeah, you got to work. So they have cousins in South America, the Andean condor, um, which are a little bit bigger, but ours up here are just absolutely massive. And unlike the bald eagle, the condor is actually bald. (laughs) (laughs) So the bald eagle is called the bald eagle, but their head is just, it has feathers on it. It's just white. But the condor actually, like a lot of vultures, has that head that is featherless, which because they're scavengers, so they eat meat from dead bodies. It's just so cool. It is fantastic. When you sit down and you're like, why don't turkey vultures, all these things have feathers on it? It's like, so they can jam their heads into carcasses and not get all gross and messy afterwards. How brutal is that? That is so so metal. It's like for thousands of years, they're like, man, I want to stick my head in this carcass, but my feathers are getting in the way. And then some guys evolved to be bald and they're like, oh, he's so sleek. Like, oh, this rules. I read that that is convergent evolution between vultures in our hemisphere and vultures in the other hemisphere. Cool. Like they both evolved featherless faces, but separately from each other. Very cool. It makes total sense. I mean, and it helps. You can't have gross body gunk all over your head all day long. No, couldn't be me. But like, in addition to the bald head, they also have this really cool like mane of black feathers around their neck Mm -hmm. where it's like really Mm -hmm. big and poofy and fluffy. And it's very much, I feel like it's giving off a gothic socialite whose wealthy third husband disappeared under mysterious circumstances Mm -hmm. kind of energy. Like it's very luxurious, (laughs) but like a little bit intimidating and spooky. Right. So if you're looking for something intimidating and powerful, right? Like it's got that going for it but by far the most inspirational thing about the california condor is just its story particularly over the last couple of centuries so they were killed off by human activity to the brink of extinction that whether it was by directly killing them by just shooting them with guns which is a thing also but also people who had livestock didn't want coyotes around so they would set out poisoned bait for coyotes and then the vultures would either pick up that bait or they would eat the coyotes and then ingest the poison so the vultures were being like indirectly killed but also lead contamination was a huge problem that killed off a lot of condors and the use of DDT which is something you also see with a bald eagle too the use of pesticides like DDT like really through whole wrench in their reproductive cycle which is especially bad for condors because it takes them so long to yeah. reproduce right they don't reproduce until they're pretty old and then even when they do it's a long time between eggs so like really really just obliterated the california condor and by 1982 there were estimated to be about 22 california condors <sighs> left in the world um 22 That's like an elementary school class of how many condors were left in the world. So they realized that things were pretty dire for the California condor. So the United States Fish and Wildlife Service took on like a really ambitious captive breeding program that actually involved capturing every remaining wild condor. So they had to every single one they could find, they had to capture it and take it into captivity and then breed them in captivity just to make sure they were safe, basically, mm. like to make sure they could just get to breeding age without dying. And it worked. <laughs> it was successful. They really put all of their eggs in one basket with this one. They're like, hope this works, um, put all of their faith into this program. And it actually worked really, really well. So by the 90s, they were able to start reintroducing the captive bred condors into the wild. Um, They actually did fine and have just been slowly regaining numbers ever since. 
in 2020, the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, released their population like breakdown for California condors. In 2020, there were estimated to be 504 California condors, there you um, go. with 329 of them flying free in the wild. There we go. So that's up from 22. It's unbelievable. That is just an incredible story. There were like none left. <laughs> and I think the one of the coolest things about this, which was like mind blowing to me, is that you may have heard of California condors recently in the news because in November of 2021, reports were published that detailed the results of genetic testing that had determined that two California condors who had been hatched, one in 2001 and one in 2009, those California condors were actually conceived by parthenogenesis, wow. which is something you really don't see often in birds. Right. Crazy. But so basically, these condors didn't have a father. They had only been conceived by just the mother. So they had not been fertilized by a male parent. They weren't clones because I think the DNA had been like recombined. Um, But on the one hand, yes, that's very cool to think that like they can reproduce even in such dire circumstances where you only have females around. I mean... Also, there is the thing where like, yeah, okay, the the children of parthenogenesis may not make it to reproduction, Mm. but it's a very fascinating story that like, I think really shows off the resilience of the condor. It's life clawing its way back, fighting back, right? Trying to do it. So I felt like that whole story on the birds part, it's resilience and it's clawing your way back from the brink of destruction. But also on like the human part, it's like recognizing, you know, an issue and working really hard to like right a wrong. And it's like a redemption story, I guess, that I think is just a very, it's a story that means a lot. And I think we could really do a lot to cement that as the national bird. I got a lot going for it. It's the largest bird in the country right there. Yeah. Like, what more do you need to say? Size-wise, it's got it. <laughs> I, size-wise, it's a size contest. I, I've seen them flying, and they are so impressive. I mean, they look like airplanes <laughs> flying over. They are incredible. And, you know, there is a real question when we're thinking about state birds or national birds is do we want there to be a conservation element to it? Mm-hmm. For example, you know, the state bird of Michigan is the American robin. Mm-hmm. Not special to Michigan at all. But they have the Kirtland's warbler that basically lives only in Michigan, breeds only in Michigan. I think that's a much more fitting story because then you can actually get people to learn more about this bird that needs help, Right. And California condor is the same way. If you got people more interested in the condor, got them to go out to Pinnacles or Coast of California or uh, Grand Canyon to try to find them, maybe you'll get more excitement about protecting them even f- even further. We can bring them back from 300 to even more. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm totally down with that. I love using a charismatic animal as like the face of conservation and like yes it works using what people are interested in to like generate money for a bigger cause. I'm also I'm going to the Pinnacles in uh, August. Heck yeah. I'm really excited. (laughs) Good luck finding them. Um, You don't always see them, but they're there. Here's a tip. They are the giant ones. (laughs) If you're wondering which one it is, it's the one that is the size of an airplane. If the sun is suddenly eclipsed, look up. (laughs) Yeah. I obviously don't live in a part of the country where they are. I've never seen them in person. I would love to. I hope I do soon. I just think it's such a fascinating story. I love it. What is your third pick for National Birds? My third one. I'm, I'm currently, this is the sound of me waffling. I am going back and forth. There's two I want to do. The one I'm not going to do is the Pileated Woodpecker, which I think is such a good bird. Honorable mention. It's a showstopper. (laughs) Honorable mention. Thank you. It's a a showstopping bird. People are amazed when they see them. They don't live everywhere. They only live really in the eastern U.S., and so that's um, not one. This other one I'm not too proud of either, but I feel like I have to have it on the list. This bird is ubiquitous. It is... Whether we like it or not, one of the most famous and well-known birds in the United States. It is not native to the United States, but as they say, we are a nation of immigrants. And so it could represent in some symbolic way, positive or negative, Westerners coming to the United States, Europeans coming and sweeping across the country. And this, is, of course, is the rock pigeon you know, rock pigeon has sort of gone, for, I think, even just in my lifetime, from a reputation as sort of a feathered rat <laughs> to a really sort of a symbol of pride and a, a bird that has a lot of fans now. They are beautiful. They are. There is no question about it. <laughs> if you sit down and take a good look at a pigeon, they're beautiful. And in all their sort of permutations and all their colors, they all, they have iridescence, they have stripes, they have colors, they have a lot going on. They are tough. 
You know, they have managed to live basically everywhere in the country, introduced to the U.S. in the 1600s and now basically live everywhere. And that includes down through South America as well. Not hard to find. So if you're interested in that part of having a national bird, you know, you can look out your window in a city or look over a barn in a farm. You know, there is something to say for that. They are very good flyers. They're actually very fast, strong, powerful flyers. Um, they don't get nearly enough credit for that. That's largely because they just are under constant threat of getting smoked by a peregrine falcon or some other bird. So they really <laughs> they, they put a lot of evolutionary effort into escaping those things and flying and, and diving. But they are acrobatic flyers. They have a proud history. They used to carry messages for people in the war. So they have some sort of rah-rah element to them. <laughs> and they uh, occasionally will like eat a piece of pizza on the street or something. And, and that'll be kind of endearing. And so, <laughs> you know, this is sort of like a reality check bird. But I think one that is fairly fitting for the United States and one that we can sort of be proud of in a realistic way. It's humble. Right. They're not trying to be super cool. They're not trying to be tough. They're just doing their thing and living and thriving and making their way in this world. And I respect that. It would also be really nice to sort of extend the courtesy of acknowledging them for like how closely they've been tied to humans for thousands and thousands of years. And then once we developed technology that replaced their utility, we kind of just kicked them to the curb, right? We were right. kind of like, well, we don't need y'all anymore. Now we've got email and stuff. So, <laughs> so bye. And, yeah. you know, kicked them out of our houses. And then we're like, well, now why are all these pigeons here? What the? <laughs> What's going on with these guys? How'd all uh, these pigeons get in my city? <laughs> yeah, it's funny that they were just like a, a mode of communication for a while. You right. Know, that, that was like a, a way to pass messages, like early IMs or something, which is pigeon legs. <laughs> um, not a lot of other birds can say that. I can say they have, a, they have a place in communications history. Yeah. Which, I mean, also features into, I think, American identity also, basically. Right. You know, like our desire for connection with each other and having to communicate across large distances. And they live in, you know, they're communal. They're they're comfortable, uh, you know, living with each other in close quarters. You know, there's a sense in some ways that the national bird should be a symbol of the wild America and sort mm -hmm. of our great open spaces. But that's, you know, that's not everybody. And, and most people live in cities and most people uh, are making their way in tight spaces. And I think that the pigeon is a good symbol of that. It is. Also to, you know, give the, the woodpecker their props. Yes, please. If a Always. woodpecker is anywhere near you, you're going to know about it. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I get more stories about people seeing pileated woodpeckers than any other bird. When you see a pileated in person, you they're so much bigger than you think a woodpecker should be. They're, huge. they're so much cooler and powerful <laughs> than than you think they have a right to be. And so I don't know if it needs to be our national bird, but it deserves more recognition. It deserves more than it has. I think that the combination of how incredibly noisy they are, not mm -hmm. just with like the vocalization that they make, but like the sound of them pounding on the tree, which you can hear everywhere. Well, depending, <laughs> yeah. I guess, depending on what they're drumming on. Um, right. But, you know, if they get a good hollow tree, like you're going to hear that for a good distance. So like they're very loud, which I mean... There's a little bit of American culture in there, too, uh -huh. right? Being very noisy and heard from very far away. But also, like, it's easy to see a woodpecker because yeah. if they're in a tree, they're bright red, which contrasts so well with the green of the leaves that you're going to see it immediately. Like, it is not hard to see where they're at. Yeah, and they're loud and they're not worried about, you know, they're not hiding up there. And, you know, when we're talking about power and stuff, pileated woodpeckers destroy trees you know mm -hmm. if you've seen maybe a, like a, a hole that a, a smaller woodpecker's made you go oh, that's cute then you look at a pileated tree it's like this thing has been chopped down with an <laughs> axe there are carpenters at work destroying this tree they just they are powerful mm -hmm. you know they're ripping things apart looking for ants usually one of the things that i think is like so interesting about woodpeckers in general is how they've had to like evolve their heads to not yeah. die of concussion immediately <laughs> like they've had to like cushion their brains Unreal. to make sure that they're not like just completely pounding their heads into oblivion <laughs> and they have tongues that like wrap up around their brain they're so long they're trying to stick them in places to look for grubs and ants that they when they're not sticking out they're like wrapped all the way around their head to the back they're amazing it's disgusting please look up a diagram <laughs> look of, of a woodpecker's head and look at the tongue and trace where the tongue goes it is horrifying it's crazy <laughs>
So either of those I'd be fine with. Any of the ones, frankly, great job. I think we came up with a list of winners here. Not a not a bum in the bunch. I think uh, we can forward this directly to Joseph Biden. Okay. Um, at P-O-T-U-S. I'll text him. You want me to text him? Yeah, actually, just um, if you could just get him on the call real quick, and then sure. he can just join. Let me see if he's available. <laughs> Well, I think these are some great picks. I'd be happy with any of these. I think any of these would be stellar uh, national birds. And I mean, if the spot's open, might as well, right? It's just sitting there. Someone's got to do something about it. It seems like more thought has gone into this than it has into uh, (laughs) a lot of the other (laughs) legislatures surrounding bird iconography. So I'm quite pleased. For our folks listening at home, uh, let people know where they can find you, like where they can follow along with your work. I know you, you do a lot of science writing. So like, let people know what is the best way for them to keep up with what you're doing yeah the best place is probably on twitter at at the birdist um also nicholaslund.com is where i keep a lot of my writing the website of national audubon society or the portland phoenix newspaper here anywhere where the birdist is sold and i will also have links below to uh your books also i think those are so exciting you know what we have the biography of the earth we have that cool. here and i obviously you know my kiddo is really interested he's 8 yep. um so he's really interested in science and stuff like that so i he has been reading it uh, cool. Like as his like bedtime book. I oh him. man, that makes me so happy. I, when it's bedtime, I tell him it's okay if he reads a book when he's in bed. Um, <laughs> so he often like spends his bedtime hours uh, sitting it, and then he'll come up in the morning and tell me everything he learned. So that's so good. This book came out. It's so pretty, and the and the the drawings from Jason Ford bring you right in. And it's, you know, this is, it's a lot of info. It's really cool stuff all the way from the Big Big Bang all the way up to today. All, you know, the first animals in the ocean to crawling out on land and reptiles and dinosaurs and and people today. It covers a lot of ground, but it's, um, it's not too much to handle. So uh, it's, it's an, it really came out well. Something that I really enjoyed was that it's definitely the vibe is like very kid friendly, right? Like it's, it's definitely something that like kids are going to find endearing and engaging, but also it's, it doesn't feel watered down at all like this is like some complicated stuff like some incredibly high level information that i think is presented in a way that's very digestible for kids without it being without it being patronizing or like without it being watered down at all so i just absolutely love it if you've got any kids in your life that are interested in science pick up this book it's it's so good I'll provide links to everything so anyone can just scroll right down and click on through. Thank you so much for your time and your knowledge. This has been so much fun. Ellen, it was my pleasure. Highly encourage everybody to go check out your stuff and we will talk to you later. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening, friends. I hope that you enjoyed hearing it as much as we did recording it. I think you could tell it was a lot of fun. If you liked what you heard here today, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a five-star review on your podcatcher, like Marwin Blackstar, who left us five stars on Apple Podcasts, and said that we are full of happiness and make their week. So thank you. And thank you also to everyone else who has either left kind words for the podcast or just spread the word and recommended us to your friends. It means the world to us. It really does. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Discord. So come hang out with us in the online space. I also stream video games on Twitch on Thursday and Sunday nights. This week, July 7th, I am streaming a chaotic, goofy, physics-based game called I Am Fish. And then on Sunday, July 10th, I'm going to be playing Sonic Adventure 2. They're both going to be super fun. So come hang out links to our socials and everything will be in the episode description below. You can also send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a cool animal you'd like to hear about. We'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their other wonderful shows like the ones that you heard promos for here today. You can check those out and learn more about the network at MaximumFun.org. While you're there, consider signing up for a membership to keep us going along with the rest of the shows on the network. Finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our incredible theme music. That is all for today. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.